Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Slowly but surely, we'll make our way through the book of Galatians. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. And as you're opening up there, let me mention a word to you uh, really quickly about uh, something we're doing next Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour. If you are a guest or if you've been visiting with us or if you've been watching online and you have questions or you want to talk about almost anything, primarily if nobody asks any questions or has anything particular they want to talk about, I'll just share next Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour about First Baptist Church. We're calling this Pour Overs with the Pastor. And so we're going to have um, good coffee and good conversation. We'll be meeting in the parlor down across from the nursery, close to the chapel. And I'd love to just hang out with you, spend some time with you, talk to you about First Baptist Church. And you may say, you know, I've been reading Galatians, or you said this in the sermon, or I've been thinking about what it means to be a Christian, and I want to learn more. This is a casual way for you to do that. You may say, we missed the membership class. We'd love to learn more about membership at First Baptist or what First Baptist has got going on. This is the time for you. This is for you. We'll be doing this from time to time. We'll have pour-overs with the pastor, and you can come. Some people might call it fancy coffee. I call it good coffee, all right? And so you just come and enjoy uh, some pour-over coffee, and we'll hang out and have a good time. So that's in the parlor next Sunday. Uh, at 9.15, and we'll spend some time together. And if nobody shows up, more coffee for me. That's okay. We'll have a good time. doesn't bother me. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles, open there. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God? Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, and they had, who had slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. 
God, we thank you that you've made your church to be the fortress and buttress of the truth. Oh God, would you give us grace to preserve this precious gospel which you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. I don't know if y'all have begun to feel it or not. I've begun to feel just that little bit of fall in the air. You guys started feeling this a little bit? Some of you might be 100% summer people. You don't like a crisp fall morning. And we'll pray for your soul. But I, I love, I love fall. And I love summer. I love it all. God's given us all, every season to enjoy. I love all of them. But I, I do love fall. I love that feeling of fall. There's something wonderful about it. But I will say there is something sad to be said about losing summer. Uh, there's something sad to be that we're losing the pool and losing the beach and losing all the things we do in the summer. But there's something I might be especially sad about, and that's that we're losing fresh summer vegetables. Does anybody else love fresh summer? There's just something about vegetables in the summertime. I don't know if y'all are with me or not. I love a garden tomato. I love good, sweet, fresh corn. I love good okra from the garden. Uh, when I was in Kentucky, I got more fresh vegetables on my porch than I get now. Now, this is not a critique of you. <laughs> I love you dearly. And I get other, other great benefits here that I didn't get in Kentucky. But oftentimes, uh, we would get all sorts of bounteous goodness left on the front porch. Nonetheless, though, these beautiful squash, this okra and everything else, you know what you've got to do, right? You've got to preserve it. It's there, it's here now, but it's gone tomorrow unless you preserve it. You're hopefully getting the canner out, ready to can up some tomatoes or the vacuum sealer out to freeze up some of these good vegetables. You know, when it's December, you can't walk out on the back porch at lunchtime and pick a tomato and slice it and make a sandwich for lunch. At this point, the best thing you can do is preserve them. A few years ago, um, we were at some church members' house at Sam and Nedra Wilson's house in the fall, and I had some of the best vegetable soup I've ever had in my whole life. I dream about that vegetable soup. Nedra, I hope, Nedra's not here, I don't think, I hope you're listening. I love that vegetable soup. And I'm the kind of person I had to ask about it. I said, what is going on with this soup, Nedra? What sort of situation are we working with here? And she said, the only thing I can think of is that it's tomatoes from our garden that we canned that I made this soup with. Bingo! Nedra, that's exactly what it was. And She's an amazing cook. There's something about even a vegetable that was fresh in the summer that's been preserved. It's delicious in its own way. It's beautiful in its own way. You see, church, we've received the most glorious, bounteous harvest in the springtime of humanity. When the Lord Jesus Christ died and raised from the dead, he gave to his church the most beautiful thing it could ever receive, and that's his gospel, his good news. What we have believed and what we tell others is that it's good news that Jesus Christ died and raised from the dead. It's been given to us. It's good. It's glorious. All that we can do with it, we can't add to it. We can't make it better. All we can do with it Keep it the way it was. The best thing we can do is preserve the gospel. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to make it better. Take it at its freshest. That which the Lord Jesus gave to His church. And let's keep it that way. 
And Paul is in the middle of one of the great fights of his ministry, one of the great conflicts of his ministry. If you read Paul's letters, everywhere he went, this became the issue, which is preserving the gospel. Keeping good news good. Keeping it intact. Paul's preserving the gospel. What's the word he uses? He says, I wanted to preserve the gospel. I want the truth of the gospel to be preserved for you. You see, what Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, and even those Gentiles in Galatia had come under fire by a group of ministers of some sort. Paul calls them false teachers who had come into Galatia and told the Gentile believers there, well, sure, you've received the grace of Jesus, but there's a little more to it than that. Let us tell you about our old friend Moses. Surely you know that you must be circumcised and follow apparently other parts of the law if you are to be saved. So what Paul's doing in Galatians, and in particular in this opening story that he's telling to the Galatians, is he's telling about the reality that he received the gospel and that that which he received, not from the apostles... These false teachers apparently tried to claim friendship and claim influence from the other apostles. Paul says, that's not where I got my gospel. My gospel didn't come from them. My gospel didn't come from man. I didn't make it up. My gospel came from Christ, the same as theirs did. It's Jesus who's given us this good news. Paul's demonstrating through the story and through the rest of the argument of Galatians, this is what we've received from Christ, and he's trying to encourage these Galatians who seem to be bewitched, who seem to have been taken away from the gospel. They're deserting the gospel for this Judaizing approach where we add law to gospel rather than going from the law to the gospel. And Paul's encouraging them, no, we have to preserve the gospel. I want to show you three truths this morning. Uh, three things that I think will help us as a church cling to and preserve the gospel in our lives and in our church. Both are important. Both are important. You can go astray alone or we could all go astray together. We could find ourselves with a culture that's centered on and rooted in something besides what Jesus gave his church. God forbid. God forbid. As we learn from Paul, as he teaches the Galatians, let's see what we can learn today for our own hearts and lives and for our church here at First Baptist. Here's the first point this morning. First truth I want you to see is this. A preserved gospel is evaluated. A preserved gospel is evaluated. Several years ago, uh, in fact, when we moved here um, to Gadsden, um, Whitney's vehicle was a Jeep Liberty. It was a neat little Jeep, and we liked it. There are only two problems with it. By the time we came to Gadsden. One, three problems. One, it had its whole life. It didn't have cruise control. That's fine. It's a first world problem, I know. Everybody's going to call me a diva, but you drive this thing six hours from Kentucky to Alabama, and you're going to be wishing you had cruise control too. Second of all, it had a little oil leak, and the oil was spilling out on the engine, and so it made it stink. There were four things wrong with it. It was terrible. No cruise control. Oil leak. Smell bad. Smell terrible. Third thing, I forgot about this part. There's no air conditioning anymore. It was hot. Fourth thing was wrong with it. 
It was out of alignment. You don't make a lot of money in seminary, guys. So, I, you know, we just got behind on vehicle maintenance. It pulled. It pulled to the right. And so when you drove this Jeep Liberty, it's a great car, loved it, thankful for it. You drove this Jeep Liberty, and for example, you drive it from Louisville, Kentucky, to Gaston, Alabama in July. First of all, you're half high from the fumes. <laughs> Second of all, thankfully, you would be totally high if it wasn't for the fact your metabolism was working overtime to try not to die from heat exhaustion. You're processing it all so quickly, it's coming out as you sweat nearly to death. Third of all, you can't put it in cruise control and sit back for a second and roll the window down and see if you can't cool off. Third of all, fourth of all, you've got to fight this thing to keep it on the lane, in the lane. You've got to fight it the whole way. There was no coasting in that car. You see what I mean? You had to fight this thing to drive it. I mean, you had to work on this car to get it where you wanted to go. It's better than walking. It's better than riding a bike. But still, you had to fight the thing. It didn't just stay in the lanes the way... Supposed to go. Now, some of y'all might have cars now. You put it in cruise control and it, you fall asleep or doze off or stop paying attention and it pulls you back into the lane. This is the opposite of that. <laughs> Preserving the gospel, simply put, is not the natural way of things. We're not bent toward keeping this the way God gave it to us. We're not naturally inclined to keep the good news good. We don't coast into keeping the gospel. We have to make sure by God's grace and by His Spirit that we're constantly evaluating what we believe, what we think, and what we teach to make sure that it's in line with what God has revealed. You see, this is one reason why I'm an expositional preacher. Because I need to constantly evaluate what I believe in light of the Bible. And it would be so easy for me every week just to bring to you these passages that are my favorites and these thoughts that are my favorite thoughts. And do you see how easy it would be for me to simply stop evaluating all that we believe and teach according to the gospel? It's easier for me to do when I'm having to point you to God's Word every Sunday. We have to evaluate what we teach to make sure it's in line with what God has revealed. Notice in these first several verses, 1 through 6, what's happening. It, Paul went to Jerusalem. Uh, we get the idea, he'd already been once, the Bible says, about three years after his conversion. Um, understand that the way that the ancients evaluated years is a little different than the way we evaluate years. We don't count something as a year until the year is done. Right? But they were willing to count part of a year as a year. It's just the, the way people talked in those days. So it, it'd be sort of like if you looked and saw so-and-so live from this year to this year and there were no months, you would just assume, you know, if it was 1990 to 2010, that's 20 years. But there's a chance it could really be something more like 18 years, right? If, if it happened on the front end of one year and the back end of another, it, it could be like that's how ancients tended to measure years. So... Something like three years after Paul was converted, he went to Jerusalem. And then he says then, again, after 13 years, he went back. He went up to Jerusalem, again, after 14 years, forgive me. More than likely, this is after his conversion, not after his previous trip to Jerusalem. And he goes there, 
if, you, if you're trying to track Galatians and Acts together, a lot of scholars believe this is the trip to Jerusalem that happened in Acts chapter 11. So Peter goes there to Jerusalem. I mean, Paul goes there to Jerusalem, and he's got Barnabas with him. Barnabas was a Jewish believer, and he's got Titus with him. Titus was a Gentile believer. Obviously, Paul has no qualms or no misgivings about bringing with him both a Jew and a Gentile here to meet with the other apostles. Now, why did he go? He, he tells us in verse 2, he went because of a revelation. God told him to go. Keep that in mind. He believes God told him to go. And what was he going for? He was going to present to them the gospel he preaches to make sure it checked out. He was going to have his ministry strengthened by other apostles. Now, I want you to see then that Paul is going, and he himself also is himself evaluating, but he's going to have his gospel evaluated. And as part of this argument that he's making, he goes, because what God said, he privately meets before those who seem to be influential, and he says, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, I presented to them in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. See the humility of this evaluation? But then he says what, what is told to him there is interesting, that they did not make even Titus, even though he was a Gentile, those apostles did not require Titus to be circumcised on this trip. They did not require him to submit to the law in that way. And so as we look at this story that Paul's telling, what we can sort of conclude is that if Paul was evaluating his gospel, perhaps we ought to evaluate ours. Perhaps we ought to always be thinking through and looking at whether or not what we're preaching lines up with the Word of God. One, the Lord desires it. God told Paul to go do this. God revealed this to Paul, and Paul went. If you read Paul, you can tell Paul's not really interested in caring about what man thinks. But Paul went to make sure he was not running in vain because he wanted to go and submit himself to other apostles to make sure that these gospels lined up. God wanted him to have that courage. God wanted him to have that confidence. Perhaps precisely for situations like this. Before it became such a pressing issue in the church, Paul could have these conversations. So if no other reason for us at First Baptist Church or me as your pastor or all of us here, if there's no other reason for us to evaluate what we're preaching, it's clear from the text here God desires us to do it. But on top of that, you have to remember also there are enemies of the gospel. There are enemies of the gospel. Paul in verses 4 and 5 gives a little bit of a picture about some of what precipitated this. Not only was it a revelation from the Lord, but also there were some false brothers who had been secretly brought in. He says they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There are people who hate good news. There are people who hate good news. And I'm going to go ahead and, and just say to you right now, some of the people in the world who hate the gospel the most are the people who are running from the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the world hates the gospel. We, we know that the Lord doesn't like Jesus. The world doesn't like Jesus. 
We, we know the world's rejected the gospel, but I want you to know, I've seen people in my ministry who so desperately needed the grace of Christ. And the sort of behavior that you see happening here is exactly how they act. They're always spying. They're always trying to see. Do you see how joyful those people are? Don't they know this is a church? Now think about that for a moment. Do you see these people having a good time? Do you see these people doing this? Do you see these people doing that? People run from Jesus and they come to hate good news because they're locked down under condemnation. Their hearts are far from God. Though they may sit in the pew every Sunday. The same is true of these people who are spying out Paul's freedom. They're enemies of the gospel. They want the good news to be bad news. They want other people to be miserable like they are. They want everyone to be under the slavery of the law and not slaves to Christ where perfect freedom is given. We have to constantly evaluate what we're preaching because there, were, there are people out there in the world and sometimes, and I, I don't know of anyone right now, but sometimes even in the church, there are people who hate to hear the gospel. People who hate to hear good news. And don't think for a moment that we're immune from those influences. But we should be encouraged in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. The gospel's true. There was nothing to add to what Paul was preaching. Not even Titus had to be circumcised. Paul says, I'm preaching the same gospel as the other apostles. But you see, Paul was preaching the same gospel. Nothing was added. He wasn't wrong, and yet he still evaluated his gospel. A preserved gospel, a gospel preserved for God's people, is one that's constantly, regularly evaluated according to the Word of God. Here's the second truth that I think will help us have a preserved gospel. A preserved gospel is grace-oriented. A preserved gospel is grace-oriented. Notice how the narrative moves on in verse 7. Verse 6, he says, They added nothing to me. And then, in fact, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, because the same God worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry, to the circumcised, the same God worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, Paul says. Notice verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. The true gospel is grace-oriented. And when we ever lose grace, we've lost the gospel. Now, I want you to know that softening God's moral demands is not grace. It's not grace. I'm not saying that what we need to do is just say, do whatever you want and love God and be happy. You can't do whatever you want and love God. Love for God and love for neighbor and Grace transformation changes our lives. We we need to understand. We'll talk about this some tonight at 6 o'clock. But, but to understand God's moral demands in so many ways is what drives us to grace. There's no grace needed if God doesn't have high standards for behavior and what sin is. But I want you to notice something here. A preserved gospel 
is grace oriented? First of all, it's oriented toward grace and what it offers to others. One thing I love here that the apostles get, and I think you know if you've read Acts, that it took Peter and some of the other apostles a minute to understand that the gospel was available to Gentiles as well as Jews. And really some of the trauma of Jewish Christians processing this is part of the backdrop for a lot of these conversations we see in the New Testament. The challenge of thinking through a people who was once unclean becoming clean, it's a challenge for folks. It was a challenge for Peter. The Lord finally got through to him, and even then, as we'll see next Sunday, he didn't always walk in step with what God had revealed to him. Paul would have to confront him directly to his face. And yet, what is offered to others is grace. That's what we're here to offer. You know, it'd be so easy for me. Most of us agree on most stuff. You know what I mean? We, we all kind of, I mean, maybe, I'm sure some of us are a little different on different things, but most of us agree. And it would be really easy for me every Sunday to just come in here and get us all worked up about what everybody else is doing wrong. You wouldn't even, in fact, you should just probably, if I start doing that, why would you even come to church? Just keep watching the news. You can get that at home. You can get this at home too, you know, but you know what I mean. You wouldn't have to change the channel. I'd hate for you to even have to go through that. Zero, zero, 005, you don't need to do that. Just stay where you are. We could come in every Sunday and talk about, talk about how terrible everything is. How terrible those people are. And how awful it is the way our country's going. How terrible it is. I can't believe my children are going to have to grow up in a world like this. I mean, every Sunday we could just talk about it. And y'all could leave here and you could say, man, we have such a courageous preacher. Because he calls it like it is. Oh, my friends. That's not the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is the reality that when we talk like I've just talked, whoever it is that you're picturing in your mind is precisely as sinful before God as you are apart from Christ. The point of us being here is the point that there are no other people. We are those people. Do you see? We desperately need the gospel of grace. And we have to offer grace to everyone and everyone, everyone that wants it. Do you see how Paul is teasing out the fact that the gospel of grace, even though there's a division of labor, one portion of the church is focused on reaching the Jewish people, the circumcised, and another part of the church is focused on reaching Gentiles. I don't think either were exclusive, but by and large you see these focused ministries in these ways? Nonetheless, despite this division of labor, grace is available for everyone. And I can promise you, I don't know what lines you want to draw, but I promise you, you want to draw some lines. You want to draw some lines. You want to think about who deserves grace and who doesn't. Well, sure, this person or that person does, but man, if this person walked through the door today, and your circle might be real tight. might be one person who you think doesn't deserve grace. might be a whole slew of people. might be a whole group of folks. I don't know. But once we lose grace for everyone, we've lost grace altogether. We've missed the point. But on top of that, the 
gospel is grace-centered also, not only in what we offer others, but in what it does in us. Do you see what Paul says? What finally sort of won James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John. Now think about this. These are pretty big names, right, guys? James, he's got a book. Peter, he's got a few books. John, he's got several books. John was Jesus' best friend. James was his brother. We all know about Peter. Peter would preach and 4,000 people would get saved afterward. They were all there when the Spirit fell. They were all there. And guess what? Paul was the guy out trying to kill their friends and kill them too. One of their first deacons, Stephen, Saul approved of them being stoned to death. But what did they see? What did they see? They seemed to be pillars, Paul said, and they perceived the grace that was given to me, and they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and them to the circumcised. Do you see what they saw? They saw evidence of grace. And if we're going to preserve this gospel that we've been given, we have to preserve it and make sure it is grace-oriented. Not only do we need to make sure that we are offering grace to others, but we need to make sure as a church that that grace is taking hold in the lives of people. It'd be one thing, you know, if Paul walks in and says, I'm a Christian now, and they say, praise God, that's wonderful, and he pulls out a knife and tries to kill them. And they say, I don't think your life's been changed by the gospel, Paul, if you're still trying to kill Christians. Well, don't you guys believe in grace? Don't you believe Jesus loves me no matter what? Well, yeah, but you have to repent of your sins. They saw evidence of grace. And so we have to recognize as Christians that if we're going to preserve the gospel, we have to make sure that grace is taking root and taking hold and transforming our lives. Here's the last point. The third truth is this. Verses 9 and 10. They give him the right hand of fellowship to him Barnabas, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is our third point. A preserved gospel is put to work. A preserved gospel is put to work. We've got to exercise the gospel muscle or we'll lose it. You see, the gospel has to result in something. Think about two churches. Imagine two churches. Here's one church. Church number one, first church. Let's call it Second Baptist Church. Second Baptist Church doesn't believe anything anymore. And you'd go in, you'd hear the hymns, and you'd see how beautiful everything was. It's a beautiful church. They got beautiful music, beautiful everything. They do everything the right way. But, buddy, they don't believe anything anymore. They don't believe the Bible's true anymore. Their pastor doesn't believe the resurrection's true anymore. It's all form, but no power. There's not a nap they won't strain. One thing's the wrong color. If one thing's off, no, we can't have that. We've got to do things the way we do things. There's not a gnat they won't strain, but there's not a camel they won't swallow. They hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. What about Third Baptist Church, though? 
Second Baptist Church, they've abandoned the gospel. The Third Baptist Church believes what God tells them to believe. If their pastor stood up and preached heresy, they would be livid. They're doctrinally sound. They reject all that the Bible tells them to reject. You know what they do? They come to church. They hear beautiful music. They worship the Lord Jesus. They hear the word preached. And they go home. They sit there. They go to work. And they do nothing with that gospel until they get back next Sunday. Some of them might come on Wednesday because they're super good Christians. They believe the gospel. They even revere it. But they hide it under a bushel. Which church has abandoned the gospel? Which is worse? Neither has preserved the gospel. Neither has gotten where they need to get. And I can promise you that church number one, the church that doesn't believe anything, used to be church number two that believed it and took it for granted. Here's the reality. Our gospel must animate us. We are not so heavenly minded that we're not any earthly good, right? That's not who we are. As one friend of mine said one time, he said, we've got to get off our blessed assurance and do something. The gospel is meant to result in good works. There are two things here that Paul seems to highlight. One is that some go to the Gentiles, some go to the circumcised, but the emphasis here is go. Take the gospel somewhere to somebody. You are in countless more places than our staff are this week. You will see countless more people than I will this week. That's not to say that I shouldn't be trying to spread the gospel. I will be. But will you? Will you be in all the places I won't be? Will you go to the places I can't go? The answer is yes, you will. The question is whether or not you'll bring the gospel with you. And then he says, remember the poor. We could be as evangelistically strong as we want to be, but at the same time, we also need to remember those who are less fortunate than us. Now, I think right here in this context that the apostles were encouraging Paul to remember in particular the poor believers in Jerusalem, in the church in Jerusalem. You can see the way that Paul carries out that ministry all throughout the book of Acts. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians. There's all sorts of ways we see the way Paul remembered the poor. But what I would say for us as a church, whether it's our own friends here who are in need or those outside us who are in need, whatever it is, we've got to put the gospel to work. We can't preach the gospel and not love people in their bodies, but we also can't serve people's physical needs and not give them the gospel. We have to have a balanced approach to putting the good news to work here and now. You see it? God forbid that we're either church. God forbid that we're a church that's abandoned the gospel, but God forbid that we're a church that forgets it. It might be worse. At least the people who don't believe it don't believe it. But what about the ones that do? But you really can't tell. God forbid that that would ever be us. Brothers and sisters, we've been given a beautiful gospel. We've been given a treasure. And you remember that day when you found that treasure in a field. And you sold everything you had to buy. You remember that day. 
when you realized how badly you needed Jesus and you searched all the day long like you'd lost a valuable coin in your house until finally Jesus found you. Let's never forget that it's our job and our work to take that which we're so passionate about, that which is so beautiful which we've received, and we preserve it. We preserve it by evaluating. We preserve it by searching for grace and making sure we're focused on grace. My friends, we preserve it by using it, by putting it to work. It's my hope and my prayer that you and me and all of us here will continue to preserve that gospel. One last word. Some of you may realize you can't preserve what you've never had. And that gospel is beautiful to you today. I hope you'll respond to Jesus in faith. Let's pray together. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray.